Well, thank you for leading us through that thoughtful prayer, Pastor Valene. And uh, happy birthday to you, Reverend Griffin. Reverend Griffin didn't quite fit into the happy birthday song, but it seemed disrespectful to say Howard. But uh, God continues to be with you, doesn't he? It's been quite a journey this past year, and we're glad that we can be with you and celebrate today. There's always cake. It's good. When Pastor Brian asked if I could come and share with you this morning, I asked him if there's any scriptures in particular that he wanted us to look at, and he told me I could preach on whatever I wanted to. So I wanted for some time to look closer at a passage that I ran across again, and this passage has always bothered me. It seemed like the perfect opportunity to dig into some scripture, and so I plan to take you with me on this journey and discover hopefully a nugget or two in God's word this morning. But as we begin, let me bring you greetings from my family. Many of you here know about my husband, Brad. He was a member of this very congregation for 40 years until I disrupted his life. We got married 10 and a half years ago. He would love to be with us here today, but he's running sound ministry for one of our sister Nazarene churches in their stampede breakfast. And as some of you know, I have two children, Rayleigh and Brock. Rayleigh's in the black there. She's our creative one, the big ideas person. And she's also an achiever. She loves the Lord and is serving in our sister church here in Calgary. She's graduated from Simon Fraser with a degree in fine arts and is a full-time ballet instructor. Now, Brock is our analyst. He's an input person. And he's currently studying computer science at the University of Lethbridge. And Brock has not really changed since he was about, oh, maybe three years old. In fact, every year in elementary, I would get a similar comment on one of his report cards that would say something like this, Brock has a strong sense of justice. (laughs) It makes you wonder what's behind that, doesn't it? Or Brock has a very clear sense of right and wrong. Or Brock will take a strong stand for what he determines to be right. And we were often told stories of how young Brock stood up for a student that he thought was being bullied, or if someone had been passed over for a turn when it was their turn, Brock would be the one to bring this injustice to the attention of the teacher. And there's something about unfairness that can make me angry as well. For example, how is it that some people can just wake up and bounce right out of bed? And some of us take a little longer to look this good, hey? How unfair is that? And there's other things that are unfair in life that bother me as well. I think it's unfair that babies are born with FAS, with fetal alcohol syndrome, a totally preventable diagnosis. And I think every uh, health class in high school needs to have an interview with someone who's had to live with FAS so that they can see and hear firsthand that drinking while pregnant has lifelong consequences on someone. Can you tell my family's been affected by FAS? I think it's unfair that people have to ration their insulin because they can't afford the cost of this life-saving medication when the patent was literally given away by the Creator in order to save lives. That's unfair. I think it's unfair that people can pay into insurance for years, and then when it's needed, somebody finds a loophole that prevents them from compensating them for ongoing medical assistance. That's injustice to me, right? Life seems so unjust sometimes, doesn't it? And if we had time, I'm sure we could go up and down these rows 
and listen to stories of injustice that has been done to us or to members of our families or in our communities. Well, there is a story in the Bible that just screams out unjust to me as I read it. And I've struggled with it because it seemed so unfair. And you can tell me what you think later. Let's go ahead and take a look at the story. It's found in the Old Testament portion of the Bible in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. Let's read this. David again assembled all the choice men in Israel, 30,000. He and all his troops set out to bring the ark of God from Baal Judah. The ark is called by the name, the name of Yahweh of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. That's important. Remember that. They set the ark of God on a new cart and transported it from Abinadab's house, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the cart and brought it with the ark of God from Abinadab's house on the hill. Do you like how easy that just slips off my tongue? I practiced it last night. Ahio walked in front of the ark. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of firwood instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to Nakan's threshing floor, Uzzah reached out to the ark of God and took hold of it because the oxen had stumbled. Then the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah, and God struck him dead on the spot for his irreverence, and he died there, next to the ark of God. David was angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah, so he named that place an outburst against Uzzah, as it is today. David feared the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? So he was not willing to move the ark of the Lord to the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obedidim, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in his house three months, and the Lord blessed Obedidim and his whole family. So right away, let me say, how fair is that? Right? Uzzah dies because he's caring for the ark? You know, this story about God makes him sound so, so punitive, doesn't it? So particular, so unjust. But I've learned in my couple times around the block that when something sounds funny or out of whack with what else I've learned in the Bible, there's got to be something deeper going on. And so we're going to take a look at the context of this story and try to figure out what was God so angry about? So first of all, let's take a look at what's going on with this box called the Ark of the Covenant. You know, now there's been a spin-off. Somebody else tried to make famous on it, you know, in the Tomb Raider series. But um, this is the Ark of the Covenant that's right in the Bible. Well, the word Ark in Hebrew simply means chest. Simply means chest. The Ark was a wooden box overlaid with gold. It was over four feet long and two and a half feet high and two and a half feet wide. And on top of the ark, there was a slab of pure gold called the mercy seat. We sang about mercy this morning. That's significant here with the ark. And then there's two golden angels of cherubim that are facing one another over the mercy seat. 
This Ark of the Covenant was the central piece of furniture in the tabernacle. And it was placed towards the back in a place called the Holy of Holies. In fact, the Ark was the only piece of furniture in that room. Why? Because at that time, the Ark was the throne of God on earth. And God's presence comes and settles between the cherubim. You know, way back in Genesis 15 and Abraham, uh, when he came into the presence of God, it was through a smoking pot and a burning torch. You might remember those stories. When Moses came into the presence of God, it was through a burning bush. When Jonah met God, it was through a storm. That was a very physical presence. There's always some kind of physical manifestation when God made his presence known. And according to a man named Scott Mays, there's only one object, though, in the whole history of the Bible that God routinely attached his presence to. And it was this, the Ark of the Covenant. It was over this Ark that the very presence of God appeared. There stood the Shekinah glory of God. And so really what the ark is representing is the very experience of God. Now you may well ask, if the ark was so significant to the Israelite people, how in the world did it end up in the hands of their enemies? Well, you see, part of our story goes back to 1 Samuel. And there's several years in between, so I just want to give you a brief uh, capsule of what happened. See, Israel had fought a losing battle against the Philistines. This was a terrible time in the kingdom of Israel, a time of great moral and spiritual decay and faithlessness. And when they'd go into battle, Israel's enemies, who were not followers of our God, would often come and place their idols and their statues into the middle of their armies, and then they would march into battle. And if they won... They would attribute their power to these statues and these idols that they had in the middle of their army. So guess what the Israelites thought? Hey, we need to do the same thing. What's special to us? The Ark of the Covenant. Our God's powerful, so let, it's going to cause us to win the battle. The trouble was the Israelites hadn't consulted with God, the very presence of God, as to whether he wanted to be in the middle of their army. And in fact, what were the Israelites doing? They were trying to manipulate the power of Almighty God to do their bidding. Friends, let me ask you this. Can you think of a time when we may have occurred such manipulation and seen it going on in our churches? In our own lives? Sometimes when we pray, when we offer our money or our time, do we do it in such a way as to hope to appease Almighty God to do our bidding? Well, the Israelites brought out the ark into the middle of their army, and guess what happened? The ark was captured by the Philistines, and the battle was lost. So those Philistines had brought the ark into their God's temple, Dagon. Can you imagine how disrespectful and then placing it right there in front of this big statue, essentially they said, our God is bigger than your God. I want to encourage you to take some time this afternoon or in the next couple of days to finish reading this story. It's pretty funny, and I don't want to spoil the end for you, but the Philistines eventually realize that, okay, enough is enough with this thing already. 
And they're trying to appease God in an attempt to get rid of the plagues that have been falling them. Tumors and rats. Can you imagine? That's a plague. One mouse is a plague for me. And so they were going to send it back with five golden idols representing these tumors and these rats. Now, the official Hebrew word on here, the real Hebrew word, isn't just tumor. It's hemorrhoids. <laughs> so we're going to give you five golden statues of hemorrhoids and rats to appease your God. And so they come up with a plan that's going to place the ark on the back of a new cart and have cows pull it away. And eventually the ark makes its way back to a town close to Jerusalem. And it's interesting because in that town was a high concentration of one of the tribes of Levi, or Levites. This family was actually given responsibility for the ark many years ago. Isn't that interesting? The ark came back and they take care of. But it was there that a bunch of the Israelite men saw the ark and decided they were going to look inside. Usually it was behind the whole of holies, right? Now they're going to take a look. You know what the Bible tells us? They were killed instantly. So much for that curiosity. And so because of that, the Israelites also joined their enemies, the Philistines, by saying, in essence, no one is safe in the presence of the Lord. Who will take this ark away from us? We want to get rid of it. And so they took it, and it remained in another place for 20 years. And that's where it stayed. Until King David comes and takes back the city of Jerusalem, that newly established capital city. And this is where our story brings us to our first point this morning, which is the strength of God. The strength of God. You know, in times of revival, people awaken to the reality of the strength of God. And in times of awakening, that strength of God is often on display. His reality is recognized. His presence is most prominent with his people. So why don't we see more revival? Well, I would say some of the reasons are because we try to minimize or take away that strength of God. And we can do that by, first of all, trying to replace God. The first way we do that is by replacing him with idols. Now remember the Philistines tried to minimize the strength of God by placing the ark before their idol god. And you all know the commandments. Don't bow down to idols. I'm your only God. But don't be deceived here this morning in thinking idols are mere statues. An idol is anything that takes the place of God. Money can become an idol so easily. And I ask you to consider for a moment, what are you pursuing? Because an idol is something that when you lose it, you don't feel like life is worth living. Just about anything in life can serve as an alternative to God. So here's how to test if you are worshiping an idol and not the true God. Do you have to feed your God? Do you have to set your God back in his place? Does your God need your protection all the time? Does your God need crazy glue to keep all the pieces together? Do you worry about your God? You see, when we worship God, His strength becomes your strength. And so the first way we try to minimize the strength of God is when we replace Him, but it's also when we attempt to manipulate God. And the strength in our story is quite paradoxical, isn't it? Think about this for a moment. One day the Ark of the Covenant is surrounded by 30,000 Israelite soldiers. 
it ends up in the hands of the enemies. And only a few days later, that Ark of the Covenant is sitting all by itself in enemy territory, not a single Israelite soldier around. And there it is, laying waste to an entire nation with hemorrhoids, rats, and that, um, that statue that's fallen flat on its face. You see, Israel's success is always hinged on their response to the grace of God. And these were faithless times for that nation. They felt God could be manipulated. Well, what does it mean to manipulate God? It means you are trying to take control of him. You are attempting to manage his power for your purposes. You know, today the ark is not with us, but God's presence is through the Holy Spirit. And as Jesus said, that movement of God's spirit is mysterious like the wind. We can't tell where his spirit comes from or when his spirit is coming. And while we can't always make God move, we can set our sails up for when his spirit is moving. Do not quench the spirit. Well, this story in the Bible Bible reminds us of the strength of God, but secondly, it reminds us, and this is the one that got me, was the holiness of God. I want us to take a look again at verse 3. They carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to that threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen had stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. Now let me ask you, why did Uzzah die? When Uzzah put out his hand... It shows that he did not understand the gospel in the slightest. He didn't understand that there's this enormous gap that could only be bridged by some kind of radical grace and the sacrifice and atonement. This lack of respect towards God was lethal for him. Now some people will say, I still don't understand why Yuza died. All he was trying to do was prevent that ark from hitting the ground. And it was then that God reminded me of another story found in the book of Leviticus. When God tells Moses these words, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. You see, God had given rules for transportation of the ark. And what were those rules? Number one, It had to be covered. People were not to look upon it. So where was the ark in our story in 2 Samuel? Out in the open, collecting dust from the road. Flies are landing all over it. People are looking upon it. The second rule was it had to be carried by consecrated men on poles that were put through loops on the bottom of the ark. So what does our story tell us? Well, first of all, the Philistines threw the ark into the back of an oxen cart. Now, granted, they didn't know any better. But then, David did the same thing. Why? How did he not know God's requirements for his presence? 
Did David not know? Or had he simply grown so used to the culture and the faithlessness that was around him that he simply didn't care? Thirdly, it said the ark had to be carried by Levites. Remember? Where did the ark end up in that town? Full of Levites. And God especially consecrated them for this work. So did David have consecrated men carrying the ark? Nope. It was being pulled by some cows. And fourthly, the rule was the ark could not be touched. Now, if I had been living back in those days... I might have wanted to use an oxen cart too, especially if I were one of the people chosen to carry the ark on my shoulder. It made sense. How many times have we heard that? It made sense. It was easier, but it was not the way God prescribed us to treat him. You see, that method God had prescribed was not a senseless rule. It was a rule that had its reasons. And this reason of touching the ark, why it was such a serious matter, happened in verse 2. It said, David arose to bring from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim. Do we understand? Are we beginning to see the picture of how holy the presence of God is? No wonder Uzzah was struck dead for having laid hands on the ark. The ark was holy. It was the very presence of God. And it was not to be touched. By using poles, then, you can tell men could transport the ark without touching it themselves. But by putting it on an oxen cart, pulled by some cows, going into ruts, the thing was obviously going to be lopsided. And the only way to grab hold of it was as Uzzah did. And then he died. You see, David and those involved in transporting it had erred in several ways. Number one, they'd already lost the awe and reverence that one should have for the holiness of God. Secondly, they had forgotten the clear instructions that God had set down for transporting the ark. And thirdly, they'd forgotten a hard lesson that they should have learned not so very long ago when the ark was returned to them by the Philistines, that carelessness on the part of the Israelites cost them their lives. Remember, they just opened it up to take a look inside. Why didn't they learn from that? How ironic is it to see the Israelites imitating the Philistines? Right? The irreverence of the Philistines brought plagues upon their cities. And they themselves came to fear the Lord, and particularly his presence with the ark. And they wanted to send it away to others. And now when the ark is returned to the Israelites, they too are irreverent and are smitten by God so that they want to send the ark on to somebody else. Let me ask you this. Why do we find it so easier to relive history than to learn from it? Think about your lives. That's why it's so important that we share with one another and tell one another our stories. If I'm going to learn, I might as well learn from your mistakes. You might as well learn from mine than having to repeat them, right? Well, why did Uzzah die? Because every one of those rules that God had set forth regarding his holiness was disregarded. 
Uzzah was not a Levite. They weren't carrying it as they were told to. Uzzah touched it. They broke all the rules. So this rule of do not touch is a little different than the rule of, you know, don't put your hand on the hot stove kind of thing. Right? God knew that his holiness cannot be in the presence of sin. Do you hear that? God's holiness cannot be in the presence of sin. And the ark tells us that there's this chasm between God and you, and you can't cross that chasm. There has to be a sacrifice. A debt has to be paid. And so Uzzah died because his sinfulness came upon God's holiness. Uzzah thought the dirt on the ground would defile the ark more than his hand would. And as I reflected on the scripture, I was caught up with this idea of the holiness of God. You see, I think Uzzah came upon the holiness of God. And that, my friends, is what sin looks like before a holy God. You see, revival and awakening is a time when scores of people wake up to this reality that God is infinitely holy. And so as I pondered over this story, first of all, convinced at how unjust this situation was to Uzzah, I was convicted over how much we malign and disregard the holiness of God. There are times when we treat him with such callousness, when we justify our sinful hearts and then come brazenly before him. We slander and gossip about someone in God's family and then lift our dirty hands in praise to him. We justify our lusts. Only human, you know. We see others as objects of our desire. And then we expect that holiness of God to see us as his dearly loved children. Father, forgive us. Forgive us for accepting our culture and our habits and our lifestyles as normal when you have called us to far, far greater. Well, this story reminds us of the strength of God and the holiness of God. And lastly, it needs to tell us about the mercy of God. Remember that mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant? There's two purposes for the Ark. The first was to teach us about this chasm that exists between God and us. God is infinitely holy, and we are not. And this ark was given so that we should know our problem is far worse than we ever imagined. Now, I know there's people who would read this story and conclude, I can't believe in a God who would do this to good people like Uzzah. I can't believe in a God where you just break one rule and you're killed instantly. But that's not the case here, right? I want us to hear about the mercy of God that was shown in this story. The callous regard, way that they treated the ark was, was simply atrocious, really. Now, how did the Israelites get the ark on the cart? Do you not think multiple men would have touched it to place it on the, ark, on the cart? Why were they then not killed? Why wasn't David killed? who led the parade where so many of the rules were broken. And this whole thing was David's idea in the first place. He's the one that should have gone down, I think. 
Why was only Uzzah killed? Why wasn't Ahio, Uzzah's brother, killed, who was also in front guiding the ark? You see, God had profound mercy upon the people, even in his holy anger. Doesn't that give you hope? Yet there's a second purpose for the ark, and it's powerful. And it's observed when you see how David brings the ark into Jerusalem. See, David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? And so he wasn't willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city. So as we know, it went to the Gittite, who was not a Levite. He was not even Hebrew. And what does the Bible say? The Lord blessed. The Lord blessed Obededom and all of his household. That's what was told King David. So that's when David was able to repent and he changed things somewhere. And it doesn't tell us. Somehow David brushed up on what the laws of God were. And he came back and did it all right. Now he was a little nervous. So when they got the cart the right way, they took six steps, stopped, made some sacrifices. And when everyone was still living and walking around them, they said, okay, here we go. And they went on their way to Jerusalem. Now, we don't know much about Uzzah. We don't know about his relationship with God, what his motivation was for reaching out and touching the ark. I think he was genuinely concerned that it was going to fall to the ground. And it did not seem to him to be such a serious matter if he was trying to save it. We do know, though, that Uzzah grew up with the ark in his house, in his tribe. Did he become too accustomed to holy things? That's certainly a possibility. But the same danger exists for us today. Each time we participate in the sacrament of Holy Communion, we remember our Lord's atoning work on the cross of Calgary. So when we participate together this morning, let's be mindful of the holiness of God and the sacredness of our worship. God does not take our insensitivity to his holiness lightly. Uzzah is a reminder to us that God's holiness is such that sinful man cannot draw near to him unless God provides a means to do so. See, we need a mediator to approach a holy God, don't we? The ark, the tabernacle, the priests, all the sacrifices were a short-term solution, but there's a need for a permanent solution to this problem. How does sinful man approach a holy, holy God? And it was God who solved this problem in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, in his incarnation, God took on human flesh. He identified with us as sinful people to provide an eternal solution for this problem to our sin and the danger of drawing close to him. Do you know this morning what it cost to save you so that you can come into the presence of Jesus? What we are thinking about this morning, that holiness, the, the righteousness of God had to be reckoned with. That holiness of God had to come down upon his son on Calvary so that you and I can go into the presence of our God and call him Father. God is holy. And that presence of God can be a dangerous thing. 
It cost Jesus everything. And it's through Jesus only that we have that forgiveness of God and the boldness to be able to enter into God's presence. We don't have an ark like Israel did anymore. We don't need it. But we still need the presence of God today just as much as they did. We need God on us. We need God and his power and his presence in our lives and in our worship. And this passage has something to say about this matter of going after God and bringing back his presence and his power. When's the last time you went and took a trip, spiritually speaking, to seek after the presence and the power of God? Do you know what's unfair? That God, in his holiness and his perfect love, made a way for us to approach him. That way is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but through Jesus. My friends, what a gift for you and for me this morning. May our few moments here remind you of the strength of God. There is so much that goes before us. It's not us. It's our Holy Father who watches over us. May you think anew about the holiness of God. Don't disregard it. Don't disrespect it. Don't play it down. And I pray for you this morning that you would embrace the mercy of God. Jesus is that path to God. And we should come with praise and rejoicing, just like David, where we can walk and dance in freedom. And as we approach our Father the right way, we will be welcomed into his presence. Let's pray. God, our heads are bowed. Perhaps our knees are bent in postures of humility before you. We want to acknowledge today your holiness, your awesomeness, and your glory. And we confess this morning that we have accepted sinfulness as simply normal. We've excused it as being part of our humanness. We've justified it. And we have taken your mercy for granted. So, Father, we repent of those things today and all that you speak to us about. And we ask, O oh God, that you would see us as beloveds as you gaze upon us through the sacrifice of Jesus. God, in your mercy, you have given us new life. And now as we participate in this time of sacred communion together, may we be ready to extend mercy to those that we live with, that we work with, that we minister to today and every day. And may our lives of holiness be a reflection of your true nature in that strong name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.